0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Survive and Thrive, a podcast that brings you stories and perspectives on how in changing times, leaders and organizations can not only transform to survive, but also thrive. I'm your host, Jennifer Ayers. This season, our third season, we want to help our listeners learn how to positively influence the change they want to see in their organization, how to minimize disruption and even normalize the concept that change is constant. We plan to do this by exploring the eight themes we covered in Season 2. You can check back in Season 2 to check these out. We refer to these themes as the eight tenets that drive meaningful, impactful, and sustainable change in organization. We want to help our listeners understand why it's important and why they as leaders should pay attention to these principles or themes and how to put some of these principles into practice. So we've invited some guests to share stories and perspectives on what's worked, what's not worked, as well as get some recommendations on leading organizations through change. I'm very excited to have Melanie Payne with me. Melanie is the Chief Financial Officer at CINITY. CINITY is a global enterprise data management company that helps some of the world's top brands create unique solutions for their data. Prior to that, Melanie spent quite a bit of time at Dell EMC, and before that, she was at Accenture. I had the pleasure of working with Melanie at both Accenture and EMC Dell. She's one of my favorite people that I get to go and talk to when I am stuck on a complex problem, and I need someone to help me reframe my thinking in order to figure out a way forward. That's what Melanie does for me. I have also had the honor of serving Melanie as one of my clients, both while I was at Accenture and now with Consinity. So Melanie, I'm super honored that you are here today and you've come on as our podcast guest. I know you've been through quite a bit of transformation over the years that you've been in Accenture and EMC Dell, et cetera. So, why don't you share a bit about your background first? Thanks, Jen, and
1: uh, and appreciate the opportunity to join you here. I it's a real privilege to have the chance to connect with uh, with you and your listeners here. Just a little bit about me. I spent some time at Dell and EMC, and before that, Accenture. I started my career in Accenture. You know, I had an accounting degree. wasn't sure I really wanted to do anything in accounting, so I uh, I, I was attracted to the consulting life was then Arthur Anderson and Company, and you know they they teach you how to be a consultant. They teach you how to do systems work. And I I grew up through long and uh, and successful career at Accenture over about a twenty year period. Did just about everything you could possibly do there, but tended to focus on uh, systems implementation and and uh, outsourcing. Towards the end, I got involved in EMC as a client and did a lot of interesting work with them in IT and in their services space and started to get involved in uh, the integration of acquisitions there. For those that are familiar with EMC, they did probably, uh, I don't know, close to 75 acquisitions in a 10-year period. So masterful at acquiring companies. And in the services space, I joined the organization to help them integrate five acquisitions, and a joint venture into a single global consulting business. So that's where I started to get a sense of what it's like to bring businesses in and try to create and preserve the value that you intend out of acquisitions. And change management is really a huge, huge theme there. I then had the chance to be on the other side of that equation When the Dell merger with EMC took place in 2015, 2016, got uh, very involved in the integration there, which was a fascinating journey being on the other side of that. And then, you know, had the opportunity to go take a a different direction with my career and join the Synity team, which has been a blast trying to grow and scale a company in a really fast-paced market.
0: I love that Melanie has experienced both sides of major transactional events. We'll hear about what that dual perspective has granted her, but I wanted to take a moment to focus on something she mentioned, change management. While many companies will spend a lot of time and money and effort on the technical and financial components to M&A, it's also imperative to focus on the human side of the M&A. While sometimes it can be a a more simple and maybe obvious way to just think and focus on matching up the technologies or the assets, etc., but just as important is to consider the people, because if the cultures aren't considered, that could cause major problems down the line. I've written about the importance of focusing on culture in some of my blog posts, but you need to make it part of your overall due diligence plan to consider the culture of your company that you are acquiring and your own company. Leaders of both organizations need to openly share the characteristics of their people. What are the different policies, politics, and practices that are commonly accepted as well as management styles? Listen, A simple Google search has plenty of M&A failures littered all over the internet, resulting from clashes of culture. Richard Parsons, former chairman and CEO of Time Warner, said of the failed famous 350 billion AOL Time Warner merger in the New York Times, quote, I remember saying at a vital board meeting where we approved this, that life was going to be different going forward because they're very different cultures. But I have to tell you, I underestimated how different. So it's pretty important. Melanie talks about zoning in on the human component, perhaps before any changes are even made.
1: You've got to make sure they're your kind of people, that they see the market and the world the way you do, that, that you can work with each other it starts there. If there's not that connection, it's really, really hard to make it work in bringing two companies together. Understanding how they think is equally important to understanding whether the math works or whether the business case and the return and the synergies make sense as an acquisition target. I think the second thing is when you get to integration, you can't underestimate the magnitude of change that people are going to feel on both sides of the transaction, especially if it's a really, uh, a really big one where you're bringing together two equals, or it's a business unit where the company you're acquiring is going to take on key leadership positions. There's a lot of discussion on how we integrate. And there's a lot of discussion on the transition to bringing the companies together, right? How you announce it, the press, the messaging to the people and the integration ends up being run by the future leaders of the business that's coming together. And those leaders may be leaders from the, the buyer or leaders from the seller. Either way, you're still in that stage where it's easy to misunderstand each other. The communications, you know, have to be very clear. Because we still we are likely to use different words for the same thing. And uh, it's super easy to talk past each other.
0: Even in situations where everyone is trying to help smooth out the process, simple elements like using different languages to describe the same thing can have major consequences. In speaking about paying attention to culture when handling any M&A situation... Melanie shares some additional thoughts on how companies and leaders can help aid the process or hinder it.
1: So there's a tendency to think about change management as, you know, how do I get through the announcement, make sure people understand the implications to them. There's huge focus on telling people what it means, who's my boss, what's my day job going to look like, et cetera, et cetera. There tends to be less focus on what's going to happen Six months or 12 months out, because people very quickly get into business as usual mode and the communication slows down. The messaging to the people slows down. And if you hire someone new into an organization, there's an orientation program, there's a ramp up, there's a buddy system, there's all kinds of things that make people feel welcome, learn the language, the unwritten rules, and get entrenched into the fabric of a company when you acquire an organization none of that happens and so 6 months later when people are in the trenches of the organization working side by side but still really don't understand each other still really don't speak the same language there's a tendency for you know us versus them thinking or us versus them behavior and the real key is making sure people understand that's coming that they can spot it when it happens. That, it, you know, there's almost a, an implicit bias aspect to this because in most cases, the sellers are getting acquired and the buyers are the ones that get to make the decisions. And so there's an implicit bias that says the buyer's way of doing things is going to win. And therefore, the things the sellers do are going to have to be compromised or, or, or folded in. And those things tend to permeate the behaviors of people on the ground, and they change the way they interact with each other, and it creates tension and conflict. And so the leaders of an organization, all the way down to the first line managers, have to be aware of that phenomenon, need to understand the natural biases that form and the miscommunications that can happen. Because it's too easy to make assumptions that everybody is already over the change. When six months in, they're starting to say, like, why do I want to be here again? This isn't fun.
0: I really value Melanie's ability to pinpoint how with any MA, you must anticipate and manage changes, not just initially, but six months or 12 months down the line, while having a plan is necessary. The real work begins when you implement and pivot on that plan. Kind of like a transplant, the blood must match, and it's meant to be permanent. Melanie also points out how discrepancies can form in the timeline of a merger and how different people can be at different points in the journey. It's not at the top
1: tier of the leadership. In some cases, they could have had a year to get used to each other and to understand each other's business. That process is just starting for everyone else on day one. And so at that six-month point, leadership's moved on. They're working on trying to find the synergies, but the people on the ground have not yet. And it was never so clear to me than when, uh, it, you know, and in services in particular, where the asset base you're buying is the people and the skill sets and the experience. And the things your clients value the most are, are just that. And so retaining the people and keeping them engaged and motivated is the most important thing in any acquisition, but especially in the kind of acquisition where the the people are the revenue. The worst thing that can possibly happen is a service organization buys a company and can't hang on to the people because all of the value goes with them.
0: Yes, not a good thing. After covering the importance of people... Melanie outlines other challenges that might crop up when organizations undergo a major change and touches an imperative skill that leaders can leverage.
1: You have to be able to take perspective, and I talk about empathy a lot, but it takes the form of being able to put yourself in someone else's shoes, understand what they're going to hear, how they're going to perceive it, how it might influence what they do next. And really making sure you're, you're looking at it from the perspective of all of the audiences that you're trying to deal with. So, you know, a big organizational change. It's not just the people who are directly impacted where it matters because folks in other organizations are watching closely. And what does that mean for them? And how do you make sure that you communicate it effectively, but also that, you set their expectations, right? So communication is really important and empathy and perspective taking is really important. You know, back to communications, I think the other thing is constant drumbeat, repetition and making sure that you say things multiple times in different ways versus, you know, just once in one avenue.
0: If you've been following the show, you'll know that empathy has been a huge theme of ours. Obviously, empathy is always good to practice in our daily lives, but what does it look like really in the workplace? And how can leaders harness empathy while also remaining professional and level-headed? The most
1: important thing really is to put thought into it, not communicating you know, by the seat of your pants or off the cuff, but really spending some time ahead of whatever it is you're trying to drive to make sure you've thought about not just what do I want to say, but what do they need to hear? And what are the top questions they're going to ask? And how do I answer those questions along the way before they ask them, right? Those are things that demonstrate that you understand their perspective and that you're addressing it and have thought about it and those they seem like small things but they're really really important in conveying to people that you're listening that you understand and that it matters you know 30 minutes before a big announcement stepping back and really deliberately thinking what are these folks going to hear is that what i want them to hear what three questions will they have how do i make sure i answer them and i write it down on a piece of paper And I write it down in such a way that I specifically put in writing, here's the five things I need to make sure they hear. The the natural human tendency is this is what I want to say. And you got to really think about it in terms of this is what they need to hear.
0: Oh, I love that. That's great. Awesome. I couldn't agree with Melanie more, especially about anticipating the questions that will come. Something I want to add is that also anticipating resistance to your answers can be useful. While we all want to believe our messages will be received with open arms, that's really not always the case, is it? It's better to prepare and even pressure test some of your messaging to try to mitigate some of the resistance that might be inevitable.
1: Here's a good example that might even resonate uh, because I think it was something we did together we were doing a global rollout of all new processes to uh, a population of of folks from around the world. And they were in different business units, different organizations. But we had to develop one training plan, one training approach, one rollout methodology that covered all audiences. If you don't spend deliberate time thinking about the starting place of each of those audiences, there's a risk you go out and you know, you go through a training course and the people who are receiving it are receiving it with different opening knowledge. You've taken a scenario where it completely hits for one organization and it misses the mark for the second organization. You go home, you dust your hands off and you say, awesome, I did my job. I trained everybody. But then three months later, when the changes get implemented or they're wrestling with them, group A Understood and heard and knows exactly what you need. And they're off and running with the new stuff. And Group B didn't really get it because they didn't understand the terminology or they were starting in a different place. The stuff went over their heads and they didn't connect with the material. So now they're struggling. They have a whole organization that says, this was the wrong thing to do for the business. I don't know how they could dump it on on us. This is stupid, what have you. And so You get two parts of the organization, one where the change is working and one where the change is not working. And it's down to something as simple as, you know, maybe we didn't take the perspective of the organization and rolling out the training or step back and say, when we train these people, here's how we need to frame it for group A versus group B. And they both have incredibly different perceptions of the effectiveness and the value of the change.
0: Baseline assumptions to, to start are very different. That's right. Same content, same delivery method,
1: same everything. Very different receipt.
0: Before moving on, I want to circle back on the idea that leaders and organizations need a plan that includes what to do six to 12 months after the first integration. Melanie shares some advice on how that might look.
1: Well, I think it starts with thinking about that plan six months or 12 months out. As you said, being deliberate about what do we think these folks are going to be going through at that point. In all of the change management plans I've seen, they're focused on getting to the change and communicating the change. I've seen fewer that also focus on how do I sustain that change over time? How do I institutionalize it so it becomes part of the new fabric of what it is we're trying to do, whether that's a, you know, a new operating model or you know it it's especially true in things like culture initiatives where you're really trying to get people to think and behave in a slightly different way they're not a go tell them what to do and expect them to do it kind of thing they're uh you know what do we do today what do we do 3 months from now 6 months 9 months 12 months how do we make sure it's working it's really about thinking and understanding how people internalize and institutionalize that kind of a change in their day to day work. You know, frankly, making sure that your tactical change management plan includes the future and how you get to an end state.
0: In Melanie's multitude of experiences in change management with different organizations, I wanted to hear about what has surprised her the most.
1: I think it's always surprising. How much more communication is required than people actually think is required or than is ever planned for. There's never enough. You know, I've been involved in ones that went well, I've been involved in ones that didn't go well, even in the ones that went well, there's never enough communication. You know, it continues to surprise me because as clear as you think you can be, it's never clear enough to those that are most impacted by it. And I think the other thing that surprises me is how much more effective it can be when you involve ambassadors of the folks that are most impacted in the change and get them to help champion it, to understand the rationale and the whys behind what you're doing, whatever it is, that the whys are hugely important. And spending enough time with people, not as much on the what, But on the why. If they're bought in on the why, the what
0: is easier. I love that. That is so important. When Melanie says connecting the people to purpose, I can't help but think of our first tenet of successful change management, building the case for change. Sometimes it can be easy to get caught up in the how. How are we going to implement this change? How will people react to this change? How can we make this more sustainable? All of these things are important, but they mean nothing without the why. Why are we doing this in the first place? After all, at the end of the day, it is people that make up and run the organization. Even when a company is largely operated by robotic automation processes, there is still a human involved somewhere. As humans, we need to feel a sense of value and purpose that manifests in the form of culture. How you cultivate that culture will determine how your people will behave and hence drive value for your customers and your organization. Melanie highlights the importance of why it matters and what can happen when you dismiss the why. A
1: couple things that come to mind and I'm trying to reflect on the ones in my mind that weren't so good. And some of the things, the attributes of those were things like, um, you know, a sense of dismissiveness on the part of those driving the change relative to the things, the questions that people ask or their reaction to it that can completely derail things. And so to try to flip that around to say, all right, how do you avoid a situation where people don't feel heard or listened to or where their opinion and input isn't valued I guess it comes back to empathy again and making sure that you really are listening to the questions that get asked, the concerns and the reservations. You tie things back to the why in all cases. And what I've found is most people are perfectly happy to adapt if they understand why. I mean, change is hard for everybody. Nobody really likes to change if they're comfortable in their current space. But if they understand the rationale, then they can sort of go, all right, I get why this is important. Sure, I'll I'll go ahead and do that. If they don't get the rationale, the resistance is that much stronger. And so along the way, making sure that you, one, respect what the people are feeling, even if it's not things you think they should be feeling, they're feeling it. So you have to respect it and you have to listen to it and pay attention to it because it's real to them. And two, even though you think you've communicated the why a bunch of times, use those reflection points where people are frustrated or discouraged or what have you to tie things back to the why, because it makes it easier for them to get through it.
0: Before we wrap up today, Melanie shares three pieces of advice she believes that can help leaders and organizations not just survive, but thrive and change.
1: Communicate, communicate, communicate. There's never too much. So communicate early, communicate often, communicate in different ways. Put yourself in the shoes of the people that are most impacted by the change and make sure before you start it, that you have a real understanding of what they're going to go through, that you've thought about that impact and that you've put deliberate effort into understanding how that's going to play out over time. Today, tomorrow, or a year later, at w- when you think the change should be fully institutionalized, but probably isn't yet. And the third thing would be to tie everything back to why you're doing it in the first place. What does it do for the business? What problem does it solve? Make sure people really understand the why behind what you're doing, and it'll be easier for them to adapt.
0: Thank you, everyone, for listening and joining this week's episode of our Survive and Thrive podcast. Remember, at Consenity, we empower the conscious leader to realize positive and sustainable change. Until next time, don't just survive, thrive. Take care.